The most talkative man in Texas is Dick Bass. Dick Bass could talk for hours and hours and hours, even if he were the only person in a room. He's also one of the most adventurous men in Texas. He's had many adventures in life. In fact, he is known for climbing the highest peak on each of the seven continents. Now that is no small feat, and Dick Bass is rightly proud of that, and it gives him a lot to talk about. So true story, one day Dick Bass is taking a flight from one place to another, and he gets to the airport, and he checks in, and he settles into his seat, and then, he strikes up a conversation with the person sitting next to him. And for the next several hours, Dick Bass talks this man's ear off. He tells him about all of his travels and all of his excursions. He tells this man about climbing up Mount McKinley, the tallest peak in North America. He talks about uh, climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro, the tallest peak in Africa. He talks and talks and talks for hours upon hours until finally, as the plane is landing, he turns to the man sitting next to him and he says, oh, I have been so rude. Here we are on the runway and I've done nothing but talk about myself. I I'm sorry, I haven't even asked you your name. And the man says, that's okay. I'm Neil, Neil Armstrong. For hours, Dick Bass sat next to Neil Armstrong, the first man to walk on the moon, but he didn't recognize him. He didn't see that he was in the presence of greatness. It was like he had sight, but no vision. And for much of his life, the same could be said about a man named Isaiah. Isaiah lived eight centuries before the birth of Christ. And from all that we can tell, from all that we know, Isaiah was a man that any of us would like to be around. Isaiah was a man that any of us would just like to be. He was a respected man, a learned man, a successful man. Some people think that he was an aristocrat because he had access to all of these high-ranking government officials. He spoke with kings. So we might look at Isaiah's life and think that there is nothing about him in need of change, but apparently God thought different. One day, Isaiah has a religious experience, a wow moment. It's profound, overwhelming, sublime. Isaiah had always had the sense of sight, but one day God gives him the gift of vision. God gives Isaiah a glorious, miraculous vision, and in it, Isaiah sees God as God truly is. Isaiah sees himself as he truly is. Isaiah sees the world as it truly is, and that vision changes him forever and sends him out into the world as God's prophet. By the end of things, Isaiah would become one of the greatest prophets. He's considered the greatest in the Old Testament and second only to Christ himself. So the story goes like this. One day, Isaiah goes to the temple. And Isaiah had done this so many times before, gone to the temple, but today is different. Something miraculous happens. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw, I saw the Lord. 
I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up, exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. Isaiah goes to the temple and he is almost surprised at whom he meets, God. So many times before he went to this religious place but left having no experience of God. But on this day, Isaiah has an experience of God that is powerful, unmistakable, completely life-altering. For a brief moment, a bridge is built between heaven and earth. The veil that separates the two is pulled back. Isaiah gets to look behind the curtain and he sees. He sees the Lord in the Lord's full glory, in his luminous beauty, in his radiance and splendor, in his magnificence and greatness. In the vision, the Lord is on his throne and surrounding him are the seraphim. Now, who are they, the seraphim? Well, put simply, the seraphim are angels. They are heavenly creatures, supernatural beings, but they're not angels that you might see in a Hallmark greeting card or in a painting by Peter Paul Rubens. Uh, They are not these little chubby babies um, with little wings on their back. No, as the Bible describes them, the seraphim are bright and brilliant, blindingly beautiful. As tall as a building, mighty and majestic, they are sinless servants of the Most High God. So often in the Bible, when an angel appears to a human, that human has one of two reactions. In most cases, the person trembles in fear and quakes so that the angel has to say, fear not, I bring you good news. Or in some cases, the person becomes completely, almost dangerously enamored. For example, in the book of Revelation, John, the apostle, sees an angel and throws himself down before it in worship. But the angel says, no, 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 don't worship me. I am but a fellow servant like you. Worship God and God alone. Friends, these are the seraphim. If ever we saw one with our own two eyes, we would either tremble in fear or fall down in worship. But for the seraphim, the only true object of worship is God. These heavenly creatures lift their voices to praise the Lord. And their song is, holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is full of thy glory. These angels love the Lord and their love is loud. Friends, do you remember the movie Top Gun from the 1980s, Tom Cruise? And do you remember um, there's a very memorable scene in the movie? You know what I'm talking about? It's not the volleyball scene, not that. No, I'm talking about the scene where Tom Cruise buzzes the tower. Tom Cruise is a fighter pilot and he wants to fly his jet over the air traffic control tower in celebration. And the air traffic controller says, negative, Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. But with this impish grin on his face, Tom Cruise flies over the tower, getting the jet as close as he can to it, and the entire building shakes. It rumbles and shakes. Now, friends, that is one fighter jet traveling an average speed. 
Think about 24 fighter jets, a full squadron, and maybe they're flying over a wooden shack, a little wooden shack, and right as they're over the shack, boom, they break the sound barrier. They go supersonic, and everything beneath them rattles and shakes. Friends, that is like what's happening here in the story of Isaiah. Only this is no wooden shack. This is the temple of Jerusalem. It's a firmly established, sturdily built, beautifully adorned national building, much like our United States Capitol building. Even such a building as this shakes like a leaf in autumn when the seraphim praise the Lord. The song of the seraphim shakes the foundation. The praise of the angels blows the roof off of the place. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. There, enraptured, enthralled, just consumed in adoration, back and forth, call and response, one to another, they sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Now friends, just for a moment, let's hit pause. Let's stop because there is something fascinating right here. That construction of words, holy, 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 is important. The language of the Old Testament is Hebrew. That's the language in which it is written originally. And in Hebrew, emphasis is expressed through repetition. Repetition of a word is a literary device found in the Hebrew language, and repetition conveys intensity or magnitude. So, for example, in the book of Genesis chapter 14, there are some men who are fleeing from danger. And they are fleeing from danger, but they fall into these deep pits. That's what it says in the English Bible, deep pits. But if you look in the Hebrew text, it says pit pits, pit pits. Another example can be found in the book of Second Chronicles, which tells us about the beautiful temple of the Lord. And in the sanctuary, there is a, a, a lampstand made of the purest, most precious gold, beautiful and valuable. That's what it says in the English translation, the purest gold, but in the Hebrew text it says gold, 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 gold. In Hebrew, to double a word is to make it superlative. Pit pits means the deepest pits. Gold, gold means the purest gold, but only once in all of scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 although of course he is that. But it does say that God is holy, holy, holy. God is transcendent. 
He's in a category all by himself. He's on a whole nother level. There is a plane above all the planes that our minds can conceive, and God exists on a plane above that. God is not merely holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, 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 the thrice holy God. Once in all of scripture is a word repeated three times in a row. It's here in the song of the seraphim before the throne of God. So in this vision, Isaiah is given clarity. First, Isaiah sees God as God truly is, holy, holy, holy. And then he sees himself as he truly is, and he sees the world as it truly is. And he cries, woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Of course, what Isaiah is talking about here is sin. He talks about sin without ever mentioning the word. He makes a statement about sin that is both beautifully poetic and utterly profound. He says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. First, Isaiah confesses his own sin, his personal guilt, his own involvement with it. Uh, And remember that Isaiah is a respected man, learned, successful, a religious man, and how interesting that even a fine, upstanding citizen like him acknowledges the truth about himself. He acknowledges that sin is something that he does individually, all on his own, without anyone else's prodding or help. I am a man of unclean lips. But that's not all. He goes on to say, I live among a people of unclean lips. And friends, this, this is brilliant. Because Isaiah acknowledges that sin isn't just something that we do individually. It's also something that we do corporately, collectively, either by what we do all together as a society or by what we allow to happen without so much as a word of protest. A few years back, I took a trip to Vancouver, Canada. Beautiful place. My dad was born and raised in Vancouver, and we still have family and friends there. And one day, my dad and I went to a cemetery to lay flowers on the graves of relatives who had passed away, our ancestors. Now, one of my ancestors passed away in infancy as a baby. And so there we were at the cemetery, and and you probably know every cemetery has an office where they keep records, and they divide the land into plots, and they say this is plot number one, and these are all the people who were buried in plot number one and plot number two, and these are all the people buried there so that people can find their loved ones and lay flowers at the grave. And so I was looking at this map, trying to find this one grave, where it might be located. And I said, oh, dad, here it is. Here is the plot in the cemetery where babies and young children were laid to rest, a special place for them. And my dad came over and he looked at the map a little bit closer. And he said, no, that's not it. There's a different place in the cemetery 
where the Chinese babies were buried. And suddenly, oh, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Canada was once a segregated nation. And I was shaken out of my naivete. There is evil in the world. Really? Wow, I didn't know that. Uh, long ago, there was a list of places where Chinese were barred from going. The voting booth, city hall, banks, restaurants, retail stores, doctor's offices. How can you get health care? Uh, even cemeteries were segregated. Chinese babies couldn't be buried next to other babies lest they foul the dirt. The city of Vancouver lobbied the federal government to prohibit Chinese from crossing the ocean and immigrating to the country. And that law was given a, a rather pointed name, nakedly honest in its intent, the Chinese Exclusion Act, federal law in Canada. In my research, I found that from the 1850s to the 1950s, anti-Asian sentiment was endemic because of, listen, discriminatory laws and social practices, Chinese, Japanese, and South Asians could not vote, hold public office, or serve on juries. And so if a Chinese person is arrested, so much for being tried by a jury of one's peers. They could not have careers in law, education, or public works. Asians were excluded from public schools, and anti-Asian violence took many lives. Sometimes, friends, sin is an individual phenomenon. It's something that we do individually. But sometimes, sin is a corporate phenomenon, something that we do collectively. In fact, that's why God gave Isaiah his vision, because he was calling God to be a prophet, to go to Israel, his nation, his people, and to call them back to repentance. Canada, our neighbor to the north, shows that it's perfectly possible to sin as an entire nation. Sometimes sin is written into the law of the land, like the Chinese Exclusion Act. It's institutionalized. But sometimes it doesn't quite rise to the level of legal statute. Um, it's just custom and culture. It is widespread, accepted practice, just the way we do things. And that can be just as powerful. Sin, sin can become a social norm. It can literally be normal. So think about the enmity between genders and races and socioeconomic classes and religions, faith communities. Think about the wrongdoings of companies or industries or even whole governments. Pray about it, my friends, and ask God to reveal to you whether or not it is true. But when I read the Bible, I so clearly see it talking about such things as systemic sin, institutionalized sin, sin made legal and normal. Sin can be baked into society so that anything else, even righteousness, tastes odd. And friends, this is precisely why. Precisely why the Apostle Paul says that our struggle, 
our fight as Christians isn't just against that little devil that sits on my left shoulder tempting me to do wrong. No, Paul says, our fight, our struggle is also against the powers and the principalities, the authorities of this dark world and the spirit of the age. As a Christian, I am called to deal with the sin of my own heart. Yes, but as a Christian, I am also called to oppose and change the sin of society. It's an individual thing. It's a corporate thing. Woe is me, Isaiah says. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God of hosts. Well, friends, the only thing that can save us is God. We need to experience God's mercy and grace just as powerfully as Isaiah did. In verse 6, this is what it says. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your sin is atoned for. A seraph goes to the altar, the place where sacrifices are offered to God. The seraph takes a live coal and he flies to Isaiah, touches his lips and declares him forgiven. He declares peace upon Isaiah. Isaiah receives mercy and grace, full atonement for his sin. And then Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord calling, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am. Here I am, Lord, send me. And with that, Isaiah becomes a prophet, God's man, God's messenger, God's mouthpiece to the nation of Israel. He receives atonement and he responds to God with full commitment. Friends, I got to say about myself that I sometimes wonder if I am fully committed to God, fully. Andrew Young is a former pastor, a former mayor of the city of Atlanta, and a former ambassador to the UN. He is a distinguished man. And he tells the story about his daughter returning from college. Uh, one day his daughter comes home from college and she says, Daddy, I heard a Christian missionary give a talk about his work in Uganda. And ever since then, I have been thinking and I've been praying and I wanna to go to Uganda to work with the poor as a Christian missionary. And Andrew Young very astutely says, honey, you don't have to go to Uganda to work with the poor. You can stay right here and work with the poor in Atlanta. And she says, I know daddy, but, but I feel the Lord calling me to go to Uganda. That's what I feel him calling me to do. And, and Andrew Young says, honey, you don't understand. Uganda is a dangerous place. You could get hurt in Uganda. And he would know as ambassador to the UN. But she says, daddy, many parts of America are dangerous too. I, I could get hurt right here in America. And Andrew Young says, honey, you don't get it. You could be killed in Uganda. 
But she persisted. Daddy, I could be killed right here, too. I feel the Lord calling me to go. Well, after speaking with his daughter, Andrew Young spoke with the Lord. He got on his knees and he prayed and he prayed and he finally decided that he could not stand between his daughter and the call that God had placed on his daughter's life. And so he allowed his daughter to go to Uganda as a Christian missionary with his blessing. Well, the day came for Andrew Young to say goodbye to her, to hug her and kiss her at the airport. And as her airplane rose into the sky, this is what he said. He said, the reason I raised my daughter in the faith is because I wanted her to grow up and become a respectable Christian. I never thought, I never thought that she'd become a real one. Friends, let that sink down into your soul. Sisters and brothers, I pray that we would all have a powerful, life-changing encounter with the thrice holy God. I pray that we would all be given the good fortune and favor and the blessing of being convicted of sin and then receiving God's full atonement for it. I pray that we would be committed to God, fully committed. I pray that we would all long to know God and to make him known to everyone we meet. I pray that we would all worship God with the same fervency and zeal as the heavenly hosts, the seraphim before the throne of God. I pray that we would give ourselves to God's purposes in the world. Whether God has called you to be a prophet or a priest, a minister or a missionary, an apostle, an evangelist, an elder or a deacon, a disciple or a servant, may your faith and may my faith, like the faith of Andrew Young's daughter, be real. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, amen.